Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Brian D. McLaren is an author, speaker, pastor, and networker among innovative Christian leaders and activists. He's a frequent guest on television, radio, and news media programs. He has appeared on many broadcasts, including Larry King Live, Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, and Nightline. His work has been covered in Time Magazine, where he was listed as one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. His work has appeared in Christianity Today, Christian Century, The Washington Post, and in many other print media. A graduate of the University of Maryland, he has taught college English, founded a church, and today is on the front line, and he might also add sometimes on the firing line, forging a movement, rethinking Christianity and its role in contemporary culture. This places him very much at the center in discussions on postmodern thought and culture, spiritual formation, global realities, and religious mission, interreligious dialogue, ecology, and social justice issues. He's a shaker and a mover, very much associated with what has come to be called the Emerging Church, and is currently on tour with his Everything Must Change message. He's the author of numerous books with intriguing titles and, or subtitles, such as A New Kind of Christian, Evangelicalism as a Dance in the Postmodern Matrix, and A is for Abductive. His books have been translated into various languages, both European and Asian languages. Today he will speak to us on Everything Must Change, Rediscovering Christian Faith as a Spiritual Social Movement. Please welcome Brian McLaren. Well, what a pleasure to be here with you, and what a surprise that this many people would come on a Saturday afternoon to a subject of, uh, to, to this subject. Uh, I don't know if that's contributed to by less than normal sunny California weather or not, but I'm very, very honored to be here, and, uh, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. I'd like to uh, uh, speak for 40, 45 minutes or so, then we'll have a lot of time for questions, and I'm especially, I've heard me give this talk before, so I'm really looking forward to your questions. Uh, but I, I, I'm very uh, grateful for this chance to talk about something that I really do believe is important. I do believe we're at, at a, a fascinating moment in many sectors of the Christian faith. And I imagine we could have a, a parallel discussion about Islam and Judaism and other faith traditions as well. But in the Christian faith, I, I really believe we're at a moment of, of profound rethinking. Uh, there's a sense in many of our faith communities that the wheels have fallen off or uh, that, that something's not working and there's this desire to go back and reassess our past and, uh, and get a fresh look at our future. And uh, I think one of the big questions that we've got to ask when we deal with, with uh, Christian faith is do we go from the part to the whole or the whole to the part? In other words, do we assume we work with individuals, and if enough individuals are a little better off, it might actually have a social effect? 
Or do we think from the large scale that there's a change that needs to happen in the world and that puts a kind of ethical or moral summons upon all of us to see how we would fit in with that change? Now, I think uh, especially uh, in the more evangelical wing of the church in America, the bias is strictly toward the individual. And we might say that's really a characteristic of modernity, that in modernity we pay so much more attention to the formation of the individual. And, uh, and in fact, many times we have eschatologies or theologies of the future that suggest there's not much hope for the world anyway. And so we're in a kind of salvage mission to try to help a few individuals get off the Titanic before it goes down. And we're not really very interested in, uh, in the bigger picture. Uh, I, I got a chance to write about this uh, in the last few years in a, a book called Everything Must Change. And, and that book uh, goes back, uh, the question behind that book goes back a long time. Uh, I was uh, a college English teacher before becoming a pastor. And while I would, I would teach during the, the school year and then in the summer I was involved in uh, youth ministry. And I worked at a summer camp uh, for teenagers and mostly high school and college age kids. And we were up in northern Pennsylvania. And if you can kind of imagine, instead of this beautiful theater, we were in an old barn. And it was literally a, 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 a barn still in use. There were bales of hay and cobwebs and swallows had ne their nests in there. And while you were talking, swallows would fly in and out. It was, it was quite a, a, an environment. And uh, I was leading on this particular day. I was supposed to speak, and I was unprepared. And uh, we have a name for that. If you're from an evangelical background, you call it being led by the Spirit. <laughs> and uh, and what, what happened was this. I had a, a flip chart as my prop, and I had a couple questions to get started. So my first question that I asked the, uh, the students, I said, what are the big issues in your churches? These were kids from different denominations uh, on the East Coast. What are the big issues in your churches that people are talking about? And, and, you know, these were teenagers and young adults. They'd been paying attention. So a girl raises her hand and she says, well, at my church, the big subject is, uh, can women speak in church? And can women preach in church and be pastors? So I took out my mark and wrote women's role in leaders, leadership or something. And somebody else says, oh, in my church, we're having a big fight. Contemporary versus traditional music. Now, what's really depressing, this was the 1970s, and that argument's still going on, but we put that one up. Uh, and then somebody else said, oh, in my church, we're big, big argument about creation versus evolution. So we put that up. Somebody else, it was... Um, uh, oh, free will versus predestination. So we came up with, you know, this kind of a list. Uh, and uh, I filled up the page, ripped it off, and there was a nail sticking out of the wall, so I put it on the wall. And then uh, my next question, I said to him, okay, now I want you to ask, what are the issues that you and your friends struggle with and you talk about uh, at school, not at church, but among your peers? And and there was a couple moments of silence, and a guy raises his hand. He says, you know, I really worry about overpopulation. And so I wrote overpopulation. Somebody else says, oh, for me, I'm really worried about uh, pollution and, and extinction of species. Now, this is before anybody had even heard in, about global warming. But So we put up extinction of species and pollution. Somebody else says, I worry about nuclear war. We put up nuclear war. Somebody else, this was in the 70s. You might remember something called communism. <laughs> we put communism up. Uh, and uh, uh, somebody else said famine and drought. And so I came up with a list like this, and I ripped that off, and I stuck it up on the opposite wall. Well, that was the end of my preparation. And so I was 
it was a combination of buying time and waiting for inspiration. But I remember I looked at this picture and then I, or this uh, piece of paper, and I looked at this piece of paper and looked back and forth, and, and something hit me. Maybe it's hitting you at this moment. I think it hit at least half of the students in, in the room. First, what hit me was there is nothing in common between these two lists. Second thing that hit me was my job as a youth pastor is to get all of these young adults involved in their churches so they can spend the rest of their lives arguing about this list. And I thought, the better job I do at this, the worse off the world is. And I had this sort of sick feeling like, I think I'm playing on the wrong team, you know. And, and that day I said to myself, someday I hope I can study what really ought to be on this list. And I hope I can start to figure out what the Christian faith says to the items on this list. Well, then, I, I, as I said, I was a college English teacher, and then I became a pastor. And for 24 years, I was struggling with this list. <laughs> and I was always trying to get back to this one. And in 2006, I left the pastor just exactly three years ago. And, and, I, uh, and I, the first project I wanted to devote myself to was this thing that had been on the back burner of my mind for all of these years. So in 2006, I did a lot of old-fashioned research, literature review, and immersed myself in what's called global crisis literature, which sounds a little, a little sick, but it was actually quite interesting uh, to, to find out all the ways that we're destroying ourselves. And it was a little terrifying as well. And out of that research, I, I summarized everything I learned in, uh, in this diagram, which probably I don't need to explain at all, right? But... Uh, but uh, what I, I said is, I said, let's picture human society as, as a machine. I'm comparing it to a machine because it's something we constructed. And if we talk about it as something we constructed, maybe we can actually imagine ourselves redesigning it. And uh, there are three desires that we're pursuing in this, through this apparatus. The desire for prosperity, security, and equity. So if you think of these as kind of the gears or the moving parts of the machine... And, uh, and this human society exists within a larger structure that we call the ecosystem. And, and only one thing comes in every day, that's solar energy, and only one thing goes out at night, that's heat. I mean, every once in a while a meteor comes in and an astronaut goes out, but they don't count for, for that much in this big scheme here. And, uh, and then what we do is we, we suck in resources, and then we pump out different kinds of wastes. And uh, as I worked with this very, very simple diagram, it became clear to me that we could really define uh, global crises in relation to dysfunctions of, uh, of this system. Uh, and then what, what really began to seize my imagination, though, is this question, why are we developing a system that is inherently suicidal? Uh, and, and if you want to go into some details about that, uh, you can check out Everything Must Change, the book. But I, why, are we in so, why are we running our machinery the way we are? And, of course, probably a lot of us feel that when we watch the news every night and we think about what Congress is doing, whatever. We just think, why, aren't we, why, why are we doing it this way? Or, or a lot of us, we look at the Middle East and we think about the perpetual problems there. And we say, you know, it would be worth solving this. Why do we keep stuck in certain patterns that are so self-destructive? And, and uh, eventually I, I seized on the language of, uh, of a story that it seems to me societies are driven by stories. 
You could think of it like this. Your body is composed of about 60 trillion cells. Mine has been going up a little bit. I think I'm getting close to 70 these days, but about 60 trillion cells. And uh, those cells are constantly changing. So five years from now, you'll have 60 trillion different cells, which is why you deserve a rest. Uh, It's a lot of work producing all those cells. Um, But those cells are united by the story of you. And we could think of it similarly, a, a civilization or a society has a continual recycling of people. Uh, but there's a, a coherent story of that civilization, and, and that story frames everything they do. Well, as I began to work with this, it, what became clear to me, in, in a way that had never been clear before, is that the message that was at the core of the Christian faith, and that was at the core of Jesus' life and teaching, what if it was intended as a kind of framing story, the kind of story that doesn't just deal with individuals, but actually deals with a, a, a culture or a civilization or even a planet. And so I, I started to think about how a story could change the, these four critical crises that we're facing. First, a crisis of, of the planet, that we, in our pursuit of prosperity, have produced an economic system that has exceeded the environmental limits. We've exceeded, exceeded the carrying capacity of the planet. The best guess we have from, uh, from scientists is that in about the 1970s, for the first time, the human footprint exceeded the ability of the planet to carry, uh, to, to carry us far into the future. Uh, in, in fact, the best estimate is if everyone on Earth lived the way a North American lives, we'd need four or five planets to keep us going. And, uh, and we have this terrible problem of a highly consumptive global north. Uh, the, the key number to remember is 38. Uh, the average person in the global north uses 38 times the resources and produces 38 times the waste of an average person living in the global south. Uh, and, and then in the global south, much less consumption, but very rapidly increasing population. And you put those together, and we've got a real problem. And, and we see it in, in uh, extinction of species. We see it in depletion of fisheries. We see it in uh, production of greenhouse gases and global warming. And, and we, we, every time we turn around, we see another example of this. And, and another problem closely related is that this prosperity system that's working very well for, for most of us, all of us in this room, I mean, when we have an economic crisis, you understand this this is something for two-thirds of the world's people to laugh about because our crisis means that we maybe, you know, we go from obscene wealth to extreme wealth, you know, uh, compared to their lives. But um, when you have a, a prosperity system that's working extremely well for about a third of the world's population, working somewhat for a third and not working at all for a third, then you realize we've got this poverty crisis and the gap between rich and poor is growing. It's growing between nations. The gap between the richest nations and the poorest nations is growing. More growing because of the prosperity of the rich. It's not exactly true that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That's true in some places. But what is true is the rich are getting richer at a much faster rate than the poor are getting richer. So the the gap grows wider and wider. But it's also true within countries, not just between countries. So the gap between the richest Americans and the poorest is growing at an amazing rate. Uh, We probably have passed, now this might change with this current economic downturn, but in the last few years, we probably passed the point where the average CEO 
in a major corporation in America makes as much in one day as the uh, lowest paid worker makes in a year. It's a remarkable, uh, it's a remarkable shift. And so this poverty crisis, problem of equity. And then what happens when you have a growing gap between the richest people and the poorest people in the world? You can absolutely predict what will happen. You'll have petty crime. You'll have organized crime. You'll have more and more people buying more and more guns, either to commit crime or protect themselves from other people's crime. Uh, then you have walls being built because mass migration always happens when you have a big gap between rich and poor. And then you have uh, escalation of weapons and, and, of course, in a world with nuclear weapons, uh, terrorism, all of this, these absolutely predictable consequences of, of a society where the gap between rich and poor gets too great. But what really struck me as I worked on these three crises was then going and realizing that that framing story that I mentioned a moment ago, that framing story that tells us how to run and maybe reorganize and redesign our societal machinery, that framing story usually comes from our religious communities. But what seems to be happening now is that at their best, our religious communities are distracting people from the big problems and sucking up their time and energy in, in, in religious distraction, what uh, one Muslim writer has called in weapons of mass distraction. Uh, or very often, our religious communities are making the other crises worse. And you can think about how that would happen in relation to the planet. You can think about how it would happen in relation to poverty, how it would happen in relation to peace. I, I don't want to mention any names here. I don't want to, you know, single anybody out. But I, I was with one of the leaders, one of the world's leading scientists uh, involved in, uh, in global climate change. And uh, he, we were at a gathering of religious leaders to talk about the climate. And I was amazed by the scientists' patience with the kind of ignorance and, and pettiness of these religious leaders. Here they're being faced with data that is in, extremely disconcerting, and they were sort of migrating back to the items on this list over here. And he said, well, Brian, I, I complimented him how, how patient he is. Well, Brian, he says, I have no choice but to be patient. He said, you know, in the scientific community, he's not from the United States, he said, in the scientific community, it's very well known that unless the United States gets committed to climate change, everyone else's efforts are reduced by 30%. It's very hard to get anybody motivated about climate change if the U.S. Uh, doesn't, doesn't get motivated. But he said, we know the U.S. won't get motivated until the evangelical Christians get motivated. And we know the evangelical Christians won't get motivated until the Southern Baptists get motivated. Now, this is what he said. So we scientists, the way we look at it is the future of the planet is held hostage by Southern Baptists in the United States. <laughs> and uh, I just experienced this the other day. I was speaking. I was at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, and there was a lot of associated activities. And I was speaking, mentioned the environment. And did I get an earful? from uh, a guy whose religious community is telling him there's no such thing, there's nothing to worry about. And it, it's, that's still uh, amazingly strong in many sectors. So what do we do, it seems to me, about this religious crisis? What if, and I think we would agree, it's, it's, it's true of my religion. I'm a Christian. Uh, my religion is not helping. And I think Muslim, many Muslims would have to say the same, and many Jews and many Hindus, etc. We'd have to say something's not working. And for me as a Christian, this has forced me to go back and, and ask some serious questions. So 
I hope you'll forgive me if I sound a little bit like a preacher for the next couple minutes, but it's, it's one of those things you can't hide sometimes. But here's my suspicion, that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. He actually came to proclaim a new kingdom. Now, I mean, in a way, can you imagine Jesus pulling the 12 disciples together and saying, listen, you guys, let me tell you my real agenda here. I'd like to start a new religion. I'd like to name it after me. I mean, that just doesn't match anything you know about Jesus. And then, you know, and we plan to pursue world domination. All of this stuff about uh, live by the sword, die by the sword, just early campaign propaganda. Later, swords will really be important for you. You know, you just can't imagine that. Uh, and, and I think we miss so much of what this idea of a new kingdom really suggests. In, in Jesus' day, I know the word kingdom has all kinds of problems for us today. It evokes patriarchy. It evokes anachronism. But but in Jesus' day, let's just remember, the kingdom was the dominant social reality. It was the term for the societal machinery of the day. And um, the Roman Empire was actually very tolerant of new religions. If that's all that Jesus was proclaiming, he would have been fine. There was no need to kill him. But proclaiming a new kingdom, when there's already a very secure or insecure king in Rome, you know, that's a different story. So here we are today, where for an awful lot of people, the Christian faith means membership in a troubled, conflicted, change-averse, and expensive institution that has a large taboo against holding certain political and social convictions, with a bias toward being good citizens, with concern for religious education, and with a seldom-spoken-of dream of joining God in the healing of the world. That's one version of Christian faith. And another is information on how to go to heaven after you die, with a large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God, with a small footnote about character development, with a smaller footnote about spiritual experience, and with a basically illegible footnote about social and global transformation. Now, there's something wrong with this picture to me. And neither of these images seem to me to carry anything of the revolutionary nature of a poor Galilean uh, a rabbi who has the audacity to stand up and say, there's a new kingdom. Uh, we need a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what this ends up looking like for an awful lot of people from my more evangelical background is our message is primarily about the enhancement of the self in this life and the next. The self is kind of the, the material that we want to warehouse and then ship to its final destination. And the church exists to meet the needs of myself. I call it a soul so it doesn't sound quite as bad. And, and this is the most cynical thing I'll say, but then we want to get a lot of more, we want to influence the world so we can get more people into the church with money so that they can do a better job of meeting my needs until I get to go to heaven. And um, I, I just think that this wasn't, this doesn't resonate with, with, with that Galilean rabbi. Uh, maybe there, there's just a slight problem of, of location and proportion of the parts here. What if we start by saying, and I know this might sound heretical to some people, but what if we start saying, for God so loved the world? I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> but we start by saying that, that God actually loves the world and that, that there's this community in the world that's joining God in working for the healing and reconciliation and love of the world. And then what if I get to be part of that community to be formed and transformed to be an agent of healing and change and transformation in the world? If this, and, and so instead of the focus being on how do I get my soul into heaven, the focus is how can I get more of heaven into earth? 
Now, lest you think that that's just some kind of uh, ideology, I'll just remind you, the Lord's Prayer does not say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May we go to your kingdom in heaven after we die, where, unlike earth, your will is done. It's just not what it says. It says, May your kingdom come, may your will be done. All the movement is downward into this world. Even you go to the end of the apocalypse, and the image is not of the earth being left behind and people being vacuumed or beamed up. The image is of a new Jerusalem, which is the capital city idea, coming down. And all the movement is downward. And so this image of God's love, joy, peace, and justice being done in this world, and now I locate myself as, as being a part of this community that's experiencing transformation to bring transformation, this to me is a very, very different image of what it means to, be, uh, to have this name Christian and what it means to be a part of this thing called the church. And, and it seems to me that what we end up with then is we have a big battle between conservative and liberal churches, but to me they are just two brands of irrelevancy. Because one is, they're conventional churches, one is focused on personal spirituality, and the other is focused on institutional maintenance. And, and somehow both of them end up not being agents of transformation. They both complain about how bad the world is. One complains in a strange harmony with the Republican Party, and the other in a strange harmony with the Democratic Party. And when everyone is wishing, does anybody have any higher vantage point? you know, for, for uh, the par paralysis and polarization we're in. And it seems to me that the other option is that there could be intentional churches dedicated to saving creation from human evil, beginning with us. And it strikes me that, that those probably are the only two de denominations that really matter. In other words, we talk a lot about Baptists or Presbyterians or Catholics, but maybe this difference, Marcus Borg talks about it as the difference between conventional and intentional uh, understandings of the faith. And I think an awful lot of people have lost confidence in both the privatized and the institutionalized understandings of Christian gospel or good news. And there, there's this openness to regaining some sense of confidence in this original uh, essential message of Jesus about uh, not a new religion, but about a new kingdom. And, and I think this is one of the, the tough questions. And my guess is many of us in this room uh, the reason you come out on a Saturday is because you have this sense, yeah, I have skin in that game. This matters to me. I feel this. This is what's going on in my thinking as well. Uh, and I, I, I don't know how uh, to communicate this to people. I, I'm, and sometimes I just feel I'm trying to grasp it myself. So sometimes in an effort to try to get people to think, you have to say things that are a little bit extreme or shocking. But maybe one way to say it is this. Uh, what if this whole image of being Christians, what if this whole word of Christian has become part of the problem? You know, the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament, and probably all three, it's in, it, it, it has a kind of negative connotation. Uh, 261 times in the New Testament, you'll find the word disciple. Now, you think of the difference between a disciple and a Christian. If we can use the word disciple to mean a person who's learning a way. The word disciple means student or learner or a follower of a way. I think the closest we get to it today is if someone talks about, you know, I'm studying Tai Chi. You know, you don't say I am a Tai Chi. 
it's, it's a discipline that you learn. If it's karate, if it's yoga, if it, whatever it is, it's something that you've devoted yourself to. We even, we even continue this a bit with our professions. I practice medicine. I mean, if you're going to the doctor, you hope he's had some practice already. But what it suggests is that medicine is an unfinished discipline, and, and, and we're continuing to learn and expand. Practice law. The law isn't finished. You haven't achieved a state, but you're rather on a journey and, and on a quest. And in fact, we have those 261 times that the word disciple is used in the New Testament, and you know how many times the word Christianity is used? Zero. In fact, the word itself, I think, is a fascinating, has a fascinating etymology. It's, it's a rather recent word. In the early centuries of what we call the Christian faith, the way they referred to that faith was they called it the faith uh, or the church, but they didn't have this word Christianity. It's of a much more recent vintage. And, and it, it suggests an idea, I think, that especially emerged after the great schism between the West and the East and then the further schism with Protestantism, can we identify a system of belief that all of these sectors hold in common? But this idea of faith as a system of belief, I'd like to suggest to you, is a foreign idea to the original faith. That what was really conceived of as a community of disciples is a group of people who are learning to live in a way of personal transformation that uh, thrust them into the world, working for uh, social transformation. So this idea that what if, and what if what's going on on a deeper level here is there's a theological rediscovery and reappraisal of Jesus, the message of Jesus, of what this whole thing is supposed to be about, the goal of which is to not produce people who have the status of being Christians, but to produce people who are actually learning a way who are learning to practice medicine, but a kind of heal, social healing in their own lives and in the lives of others. I think this is very much the way we have to imagine the, uh, the earliest uh, forms of the church. What they saw themselves to be was an expanding circle of the 12 disciples that went to include 3,000 and 5,000 and, and then hundreds of thousands and millions. You even feel this in the language of Jesus. Uh, come follow me. That phrase, follow me, is essential in, in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. I've given you an example. Even what um, uh, evangelicals at the end of the Gospel of Matthew call the Great Commission, which my friends who aren't, don't have a religious background always get a kick out of, they, th they say, isn't that what you earn after a great sale? But the, 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 but the Great Commission was not a commission to make converts or believers or Christians but to make disciples, which has this, and he, he says it's teaching them to actually practice what I've, what I've taught you. You've learned a way of life from me for three years, Jesus seems to be saying. Okay, now it's time to, to go out and help others learn this as well. And of course, this exact language is picked up in, in the New Testament. These are just some quotes from the Apostle Paul. Conform to the image of Christ, transformed by the renewing of your mind. A very powerful image from Galatians. Paul talks about Christ being formed in you. It, Paul has a way of mixing metaphors. He says, um, I am in labor pains until Christ is formed in you. The metaphor doesn't work, but it, 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 it's, it's still, it's a very graphic uh, image that there's this birth that actually we're becoming pregnant in some way. 
with, with the presence of Christ in our lives. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Uh, a, a beautiful phrase in, in, in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. He doesn't say learn about Christ. He says learn Christ as if Christ were a language or a skill. Um, uh, this idea that Christ is actually in you, that people are being fully formed in Christ, that the attitude or the mind of Christ would be in us. It, it's, it's, it's a striking difference. Uh, something that is real and experienced and, and is, is, becomes part of our identity. Very, very different than hold these opinions, check off these beliefs. Very, very different. And, and, uh, and as people are re, re-exploring this issue of Christian faith as a way or movement, and now we learn the skills of it, it's forcing them to go back and look a lot in the monastic traditions uh, to rediscover the importance of spiritual practices, which I would define as actions within our power, uh, which we do in order to train ourselves to do things currently beyond our power and become people we're currently incapable of being. Uh, a few years ago, one of my daughters ran a marathon, and when she, I was, you know, at the end of the race and waiting, and I gave her a big hug and got covered with sweat, and I, I was just so proud of her. I just, I can't tell you how proud, and she ran a Marine Corps marathon, 30,000 other people. I wanted to hug all of them. I just was proud of everybody. And, and my daughter's catching her breath. I say, Rachel, it's so great what you did. It's so fantastic. She says, well, Dad, you could do this too next year. And I said, yeah, right. No, she said, really, you could. She, you know, and she's right. Virtually anybody can run a marathon in six months if you go through the necessary training. And the training involves doing things you're capable of doing. And you keep doing things you're capable of doing. And you eventually are capable of doing something you are not currently capable of doing. And the same goes with playing a musical instrument or learning a language. Just as an example, the practice of fasting. Now, it's obvious. You can just look at me and tell I'm not given to excessive fasting, all right? Um, uh, You know, I don't, there's no question about that. But when I uh, fast, I I watch the effect that it has in my life. And I'll just tell you, I do not feel closer to God when I fast. I, I feel closer to potato chips. I feel way closer to pizza. I, I don't like donuts, but when I fast, I think about donuts all the time. And, and, um, but there's something about that that's kind of ironic because on those days, I, I realize how much a hold my little bodily impulses have on me. And if I start to think, boy, I'm a pretty hot uh, Christian here. I write religious books. I give lectures. And, and then I think, and I can't go a half a day without a donut, you know. What in the world does that say about me? There's something very humbling about it. There's something that gives you a more sober appreciation. It's way easier to give a sermon than it is to control your own appetite. And, um, and, and so you start practicing impulse control. And, and, and you're saying to yourself in the moment uh, of saying, you know what, I really right now would like a bag, an entire bag of Doritos. I could eat an entire bag right now. And you think... But I'm not going to because today I'm dedicating myself to something more than my impulse control. And, and there's a kind of bonding to a set of values when you do that. And, and I, I do that over a period of time. And, and I, I think I never feel more spiritual from doing that. But then I, I get a review of one of my books. And people always email these to me just to make sure I see them. And, and it, it's less than favorable. And... I, 
at that moment, it's very interesting. I feel something in the pit of my stomach that is amazingly similar to the desire for Doritos. Uh, and, and it's this feeling like, I've got to do something about this. I'm going to show that person. and I'm ready to write a, a, a response. And maybe in that moment, because of the, whatever little amount of discipline I've had in some other area, maybe at that moment I can just say, you know what, I don't have to indulge in that impulse to defend myself. I don't have to indulge in that desire to uh, justify myself or, or protect my reputation. When you think of it this way, then you look at, for example, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and you think, gosh, maybe he actually was serious about this stuff. Maybe he was actually saying, look, if you want to be a participant in this movement, if you want to be the kind of person who's going to be an agent of change in this world, then you're actually going to become a kind of person who has different attitudes that's why he says, blessed are, and then he ends with all the wrong people, you know. Not blessed are the aggressive, but blessed are the meek. Not blessed are the victorious, but blessed are those who mourn. Not blessed are the rich and powerful, but blessed are those who are willing to suffer for doing what's just and right. It gives a different role in the world, to be salt in the world, to be light in the world. And keeps talking about going beyond what is considered socially necessary to be a good person. Of course, you're not going to murder, but how about starting to deal with hatred and anger inside of you? How, uh, you're not going to commit adultery, but how about starting to deal with the stuff that goes inside that creates the atmosphere for adultery, et cetera, et cetera, these kinds of changes. I mean, what a radical thing to say, um, I am, for, for Jesus to say, I actually am interested in you becoming the kind of people who love your enemies. It's remarkable. And you think how much energy has been invested in the Christian religion in all of these 20 centuries in making sure that people hold certain doctrines and how much energy has been invested in actually helping people to love their enemies. It, it, it's, it, well, it's what Tony Campolo and I in a book we wrote together called An Adventure and Missing the Point. So there are, there are all kinds of practices that we engage in for this kind of personal transformation. Uh, and, um, and yet, I think that's only half the story. Because we can get focused on the development of a really good soul and stay on the personal level. What about that bigger picture? That we've got personal practices, but perhaps we also need to rediscover that we're part of this mission and there are missional practices as well. You could think of it like this, that maybe the whole idea of being a disciple is actually just one side of the coin, and the other side of the coin is being an apostle. Now, we've had all kinds of arguments about apostolic succession and that sort of thing in our religious communities. Put those aside for a minute. But what if the whole idea, it goes like this. You are called to be a disciple in order to learn. And then you're sent, that's all the word apostle means, is a person who's been sent. You're sent to live out what you've learned. So the calling and the sending are two sides of one coin. And if you only have people call, being called to learn, it, it, it's, it, it, well, it's absurd. The purpose of being called is so you can be sent. So then you, get this, you start to get this balance. That there, yes, love God, but also love your neighbor and your enemy. Yes, the via contemplativa, the development of the inner life. But the purpose of that is so that the inner life can be expressed in the via activa and outer life. A good heart leads to good works. 
Being transformed leads to transforming. What St. Teresa of Avila called the interior castle actually is expressed in a social reality. The idea is that my life becomes one little castle, one little outpost of a larger social reality. That godliness leads to otherliness. And there's a beautiful balance there. You start to think even of like the passage uh, from the Apostle Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 13, where, uh, which most of us think was inspired for weddings, um, but actually ha- had nothing to do with weddings. Uh, and, and is this beautiful poem describing love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love doesn't boast, etc. And then you start to realize how impossible it is to learn to be patient unless you're around some annoying people. And how impossible it is to learn to be kind unless you're around people with great needs who elicit from you compassion. And how impossible it is to be not, not envious unless you're around people who have a lot that you don't have. And how impossible it is to, to learn to not boast unless you have to come face to face with some of your insecurity, etc., etc. You realize that these personal virtues only can be developed in a, in a social context. So this personal spiritual transformation, it seems to me, has to be linked in the deepest possible way to social transformation. But we've got to realize that you can't have social transformation without personal transformation. Now, my guess is some of us in this room have been involved in various social groups, social movements, movements for social justice, etc. And you realize once you're in the group that these are a bunch of broken people who are trying to do for others what they desperately need done for themselves. That's the way it is. All of us are broken. But we can sabotage everything we try to do externally if we aren't able to actually have that internal transformation. These two sides of the coin desperately must uh, come together. And, of course, that will then be expressed in every different sector of society. During my 24 years as a pastor, I, uh, I, I, this sounds terrible when I say it, but I, I hope you'll understand it the right way. My favorite part of the service was the benediction. Now, it wasn't because I was glad it was over, you know, get them all out of here. I, I loved having everybody together. But to me, it was thrilling to think, you know, uh, hopefully we've given people some inspiration today. And he's a, a police officer. He's going to live out his faith and his work as a police officer. And she's an elementary school teacher. She's going to make a difference. That lady is really involved in her neighborhood. That guy over there is an engineer. Gosh, if there's a profession that needs some spiritual values, it's engineering. And, and you know, you, you start to look at these people and think, we've been gathered. Now we're going to go out and actually try to live this stuff. That, to me, there, there are an awful lot of times where you can sit back and think this entire Uh, enterprise, the religious industrial complex, as some of my friends call it, is an unbelievably wasteful uh, uh, enterprise. But then you think, but what is its potential if we actually rediscovered this faith as the formation of individuals to participate in, in, in a movement of healing and transformation. So there are all those personal practices, but then there are these missional practices that always engage us in social transformation. And uh, you start to think about a number of the things you find in, in the New Testament, especially in the teachings of Jesus, and you realize that if we actually were to do those things, they would turn us into uh, activists and uh, agents of real change. So how is this world transformed. 
I think there is no other way than through communities of people who are forming their participants into agents of change. And through individual and concerted action, we really can see change. So what this brings me to at the end of the day is some profound rethinking about the church. And instead of thinking of the church having a mission or a mission agency or a mission department, you start to think instead that there is a mission and it has a community of people who are there to be its custodians and its caretakers to actually be sent into the world with some sense of mission, to be part of this revolutionary idea, this revolutionary vision of not just a different religion, but a different kingdom, a different way of life. Uh, That's why I entitled that book, Everything Must Change, because this change is radical and absolutely pervasive. Personal transformation to lead into a kind of of mission of transformation. Uh, People becoming actual agents of the kind of world that is possible. Not currently possible, but remember, that's what training does. It makes you capable of things that you're currently incapable of being. One last thought on this, and then we'll open up for some questions. What this really forces us to do, I think, is to get something that's not very well developed, and I've done a bit of thinking about this, but we need so much more, and that's a theology of institutions. Now, my shorthand reflection on this is to say that social movements are movements that usually confront institutions about their need to change. And very often you end up with an anti-institutional bias among people who are involved in social movements. But then you look, what is an institution? And I'd like to suggest an institution is uh, an organization that conserves all the gains made by previous social movements. Think about the profession of law. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, through hundreds and hundreds of trials and cases, we develop structures and systems that, cre- that bring us to kind of the state of the art where we are now. But guess what? We're not done yet. And so there's this dynamic relationship between social movements and social institutions. If the social movement succeeds, its gains will be carried on by the institutions that currently oppose it. So Dr. King succeeded because Lyndon Johnson got some laws passed. And that's continued to work out in a whole set of laws and social change. And uh, Gandhi succeeded when laws were changed, when systems and institutions were changed. Now, this creates a fascinating challenge for the institutions of Christianity and maybe for all of us who have some connection to, to the Christian community to say, we are at once a part of the institution and a part of the movement that wants to bring about change in the institution. And we have to, I think, live with a greater degree of, of wisdom about how that happens. To me, this is just something uh, that might be helpful as you deal with the struggles and structures in your, own, in your own situation. This idea that each of us is being formed and that we then are sent to be agents of formation uh, in this world, and that the real vision is not just me and my soul and not just my religion, but that we actually have some sense that we're joining with God in the ongoing creation of what the world can be, the liberation of, what, of the world from, from what holds it back, and the reconciliation of human beings to God and to each other and to the planet and, 
uh, that's an amazing thing to be part of. Well, to me, this is our moment, and this is our challenge, and I hope that that's uh, stimulated some questions for you. If you want to talk specifically, take this into politics and all the rest, we can go in any direction, and I think we'll now have some instructions about how to do that. Thank you. Could you say something about uh, what the structure of this church that you're describing would look like, how it would be different from current institutions, and the process by which we might evolve? Let me give you um, two examples, one from, his, from history and one from contemporary world. Uh, the Church of England right now is a fascinating example of this. The Church of England has had a declining, population, a declining attendance for a long time. It's said now that more people go to Ikea on Sunday in England than go to church. Um, and, the, and so they've had a declining attendance. They have the added problem of being very rich in property. They own so much land and so many old church buildings. But that is a disadvantage because when you own a 400-year-old church building, it's very expensive to maintain. And so the Church of England has people, and I've talked to them, who have spreadsheets, and it tells you when they go out of business. And that has a, a way of bringing spiritual renewal. Uh, it makes you wake up. So some years ago, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and other leaders in the, uh, in the Church of England uh, used their structure in a brilliant way. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Episcopal structure means that it basically you have a hierarchy and, uh, and bishops are very important, and they have control over what happens under their oversight. Very different, for example, from Presbyterians who sort of work from the bottom up, and Baptists who work in all different directions at the same time. Uh, and you've probably heard the saying, it's impossible to turn around a big ocean liner. I actually think it's only a big ocean liner that you can turn around. Imagine having a flotilla of a thousand motorboats trying to get them to turn around. Uh, but what happened is the, the leaders of the Church of England said, as of such and such a date, we know we're in trouble and we need experimentation. We need new ways of doing things. As of such and such a date, any bishop in the Church of England is allowed to enfranchise fresh alternative expressions of the church. They don't have to obey our rules. They don't have to follow our structure. They just have to be under the oversight of a bishop. So they use their structure to subvert their structure. Does that make sense? Can you see how that would work? A brilliant move. And uh, since then, uh, they've had, I'm not sure how many they're up to now, but hundreds and hundreds of new expressions of Christian faith develop. And in a sense, they've created their own research and development department, something that churches typically don't have. And they've done it under their own auspices, a self-renewing possibility within their denomination. Interestingly, uh, now other churches, the, the, the Lutheran Church of Norway has now adopted this. And I'm hoping that more people in the United States will, will pay attention to this. Um, another interesting example that goes back in history from the Church of England was uh, John Wesley. And I'm sure we have some Methodists here. But Wesley had a very interesting uh, tactic or, or strategy uh, in the late 18th, uh, uh, late 18th century he didn't try to reform the Church of England. He just created a scaffolding for a different structure to do the things he felt needed to be done. And for uh, several decades, 
they coexisted. The Methodist societies were not a separate denomination. They were a, a movement with its own structure within the Church of England. Now, eventually, there's a whole lot of reasons why that they ended up becoming two separate denominations. But it's an interesting strategy. Instead of trying to change the structure, you just let the structure go on, and you create an alternative structure to get the things done that you want to do. Now, I, I, I don't feel at liberty to blow anybody's secrets here, but in the United Methodist Church today, there are leaders who are doing this very thing. Uh, they are creating alternative structures to help make things happen that they don't think could happen uh, this way. So those, those would be some examples. Actually, I'll just throw out one other one, and somebody else should come up for a question, otherwise I'll talk too long. But uh, uh, the Reformed Church in America, oh good, we've got some people. The Reformed Church in America is an interesting example of this right now because they uh, draw from the Dutch Reformed tradition, and they, their, their essential documents are things like the canons of Dort. They go way back. And they're very strict and very rigid. Well, the denomination has actually moved a, a good deal from a lot of the, the articulations from the 16th and 17th centuries. But what they've recently begun to do is, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, during apartheid in South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church there uh, had a group of uh, colored and black, that's you know, the, the, the appropriate terms in, in, in South Africa, colored and black leaders led by a fellow named Alan Bosak who got together and they wrote something called the Belhar Confession. And the Belhar Confession basically said, the God we believe in cares about justice. The God we believe in is against discrimination. The God we believe in is against apartheid. The God we believe in stands for the people who are marginalized and oppressed. And it's a beautiful statement. So what the Reformed Church in America is in the process of doing is adopting the Belhar Confession and adding it to its essential documents. Do you see what happens when you do that? First of all, you fill a glaring hole because we have lots of statements about doctrine and not that many statements about justice. So it, but it also, in a certain way, says to the denomination, we're continuing to learn. We aren't frozen in the 17th century. We're continuing to learn and grow. And I think we're going to see more experiments like that that open up new space. Let's go. Let's go. Would you please give some specifics on uh, what your, your work and your research has, uh, has brought you about how people move from this thing of personal transformation to being apostles of social transformation, yeah. the, kind of the correspondence to the six months training to be a marathon runner? Yes. Well, what a, what a good question. Um, I, I wonder if I could just tell a quick anecdote that might illustrate this that relates to the recent election. Uh, I, I, got a, I, I was involved, I'll just be very overt here, I was very involved in this campaign. I've never been involved in a political campaign like this before, but I was very involved and I did a lot of work for the Obama campaign. And I have a blog and on my blog I wrote about this. I got an email one day from a guy who I had met in my travel, white, evangelical, from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he wrote me and said, thank you so much for being outspoken that you're voting for Obama. He said, because my church says the only issue you vote on is abortion. And so my church is saying you have to vote for McCain. You can't vote for uh, Obama. 
He said, but I don't feel that's right, and I, my wife and I are supporting Obama. He said, I've never heard my relatives utter a racist statement in my life until last weekend. And we were sitting around on family vacation, and someone insulted Obama, and my wife said, we're actually going to vote for him. And he said, for the rest of the weekend, I heard my relatives make racist statements I'd never guessed they would make. And he said, one by one, they would pull me aside and tell me how big a mistake I was making. And he said, I was so surprised to find out that this racism was latent underneath. So he said, it ruined our vacation. But my wife and I patiently tried to have conversation with, with the, our relatives. And then he said, I, I'm attaching an email that my wife just sent to my brother based on a conversation. And so he let me read this email. And it was beautiful. So this is a white guy, deep south. And here is the question he asked his sister-in-law. And I, I'm sharing this not to make fun of anybody. It's a sincere, this is a sincere question. Why do you think God made people of other races? Now, do you feel that question? Uh, to me, it's, it's one of the most perfect examples of white privilege I've ever heard. The idea that God made white people, of course, but why did he make all those other people? See? So, but it, it was in the simplicity and naivete of the statement, it showed this deep sense that a lot of white people think they're normal. Now, if she had yelled at him, insulted him, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. But patiently, she talked to him. And, and when I read her email, she was, pa- she was showing all those characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, you know, does not boast, is not easily angered. And patiently, she was trying to help him. So to me, what I felt probably was going on uh, last year during the campaign, in addition to all the political stuff, I bet there were tens of thousands, if not millions of conversations among white people about race. And some of them turned into loud fights and arguments and left everybody more hostile than they were before. But in thousands and thousands of cases, because people had learned to practice being patient and kind and not easily angered, they were able to bring the conversation to a place where a person's, a brother-in-law's opinion changed. And so that would be one example how these things happen over time. I think our time is up. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.